0: Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willets Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the beacon church of long island as your supporting organization and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the beacon church of long island as your supporting organization thank you and hope to see you soon well good morning I am so glad you guys are uh, all here. Sorry, it's a little warm. One of the AC units is uh, malfunctioning. Uh, I'm also really glad to be back If some of you have been following uh, any of us on uh, Facebook, uh, my wife or me, then you'll know that uh, we're just getting back from a two week trip to Guam. And uh, why Guam, some of you have been wondering, it's because it's actually where Cheryl was born and raised and most of her whole family is still there. And so we literally go to Guam. Uh, which is so odd, but that's what we do. And uh, we haven't been there in a long time, so it was a great trip. And thank you for your prayers. We know many of you were, have been praying for us uh, during that time, and it was, uh, it was a great trip. I thought I'd, I'd kind of come back, though, with a confession, start my, uh, you know, my, my time back with you. So I, my confession is that I have not been keeping up with the Kardashians. And uh, I know some of you are shocked by this. Um, because you expect us to be fully up-to-date on all pop culture references. But no, I'm not keeping up with the Kardashians, and I'm a little bit surprised that any of you are, um, to, be, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I, I know there are a few of them because it's Kardashians, not Kardashian. So I'm gotta, there's got to be, what, two or more? And uh, I, I think that I've, I've kind of heard over the years that they've been like married and divorced from all sorts of other famous people. I think there's something about that. There's like a Jenner tie-in. As well, so I've just exhausted most of my knowledge about the uh, about the Kardashians. However, every once in a while, the news algorithms will give me some clickbait that I just must bite on, and that happened this past week. There, there was like a little article, a little headline, and it said, "Kardashian tells us to love thy racist neighbor." Anybody see this? Has anybody, anybody tracked with this thing? Anybody keeping up with the Kardashians? Anybody just a little too embarrassed to admit that they're keeping up with the Kardashians? All right. So, so anyway, this is apparently a few months ago, uh, a Kardashian named Khloe uh, was accused um, of, uh, well, here's what she did. She posted a picture of this shirt with, the, her comment was on top. Love is the only cure. And the shirt says, love thy neighbor. And it's largely not controversial as you go down the list. Thy homeless neighbor and thy Muslim neighbor and thy black neighbor and gay neighbor and white neighbor and all the way down until it got to thy racist neighbor. And that was the line that caused all sorts of controversy. Chloe was raked over the virtual coals on social media because In the way the shirt reads, she was implying, according to the critics, that all of these disenfranchised groups of people are being equated to the racists, and the racists shouldn't be included in this list of disenfranchised people, because, of course, they're not in the same category. And the gist of it was that the racist doesn't deserve to be loved. One article went to say, It is hard to be colorblind in this society of racists that Kardashian seeks to love when these people actively hate others, her daughter included. Would Kardashian have promoted the same t-shirt had it pleaded to love thy sexist neighbor or thy homophobic neighbor? Probably not. So the point in all of the controversy was pretty clear. We should definitely not love the racists. Unless, of course, you're a Christian. Because that option has already been taken off the table. Meaning we are to love all of our neighbors. And this, of course, is in a day and age like this, Somehow controversial. Because yes, you can actually add everybody on that shirt to your list of people that you ought to love as followers of Christ. And we can add the people from the article too. We can add the homophobic and we can add the sexist. We can add the terrorist because Jesus literally said to love your enemies. We can add the deviant. See, we love people Not because we approve of their choices, but we love everybody always because that's the Jesus way. And it's how we see lives transformed for the better when we represent the love of Jesus in tangible ways here and now. I mean, loving people who are like us is easy. I mean, that takes, that takes no effort at all. There's nothing Herculean about that. Loving people who are good people, who are decent people, that's easy to do. Everyone does that. They do it naturally. How about loving people who frustrate us? Or loving people who are haters? Loving people who are hurting us? Or hurting those that we love? Now is when things start to get challenging. That's not so easy. Now here's the thing. If you think you're a pretty decent person, then it's real easy to look down on the rest of us sinners. But what if you don't think of yourself as the decent person? What if you actually know what really goes on in your own heart? What if you've really examined the things you struggle with and the things you think about? and things you worry about, and the wrong that you've done. What if, see, if if you have ever done anything that made you unlovable, if you ever hurt someone, or if you've made terrible decisions that had consequences in the lives of other people, if you have taken advantage of people, if you have earned another person's anger and hatred, I mean genuinely earned it, by the choices that you have made, then the idea that there is someone out there, someone who is capable of loving the sinner, this is incredibly life-giving and transformative. Unfortunately for us, one of the writers of the Bible has a life story that offers us some insight into how God feels about sinners. So if that's you, if you're here this morning and you say, yep, I know I'm a sinner. Then you might want to try this message on for size. So open, if you would, in a Bible to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, we've got them here for you. The ushers are going to come forward and you just kind of wave to one of the ushers and they'll give you a Bible. If you don't have an easy to read Bible at home, then please take this Bible as our gift to you. We would love for you to uh, read it and experience God's Word. Uh, for yourself in that way and I'm even going to give you a couple of things that you could read this week that will kind of flesh out this message a little bit more for you. Matthew wrote the gospel of Matthew and his life opens up some powerful truths about God, about God's love for us and about what it means to be part of this new spiritual family and that's what we're kind of going to unpack here a little bit today. So let's give you a little bit of background on. Matthew. Matthew was a Jewish man. He was a son of Alphaeus and he was named Levi. And like many other people, he had a name change. He was called Levi and he was called Matthew. Matthew means a gift from Yahweh or a gift of Yahweh. The most notable thing about Matthew and his life that we find from the scriptures is that Matthew was a tax collector. So chapter 9, verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, as a tax collector, Matthew was most certainly a very educated guy. Certainly very smart, good with numbers. He was also most likely trilingual at least. So he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he knew Aramaic, and possibly some other languages as well that he would be fluent in. And he collected taxes for King Herod in the area of Capernaum, which is in Israel, and it's near the Sea of Galilee, which you could still go look up. It's in the land of Israel today. And they would collect these taxes, and they would send the money off to Rome, since Rome was currently occupying the land of Israel. In fact, because of where he was located at the Sea of Galilee, He was probably putting tariffs or collecting taxes on trade from the Mediterranean that was moving through Damascus and into the Sea of Galilee. And he was also most likely taxing the fishermen who were getting their their fish out of the sea, which means he was taxing the guys that we've been learning about in the rest of this series. So guys like, like, like Peter and James and John who made their business catching fish. More than likely, it was Levi who was taxing them. Now, because he's the tax guy, he's already disliked, right? I mean, any of you are like, oh, I love the tax guy. No, usually, you know, we we don't. But, But in this day and age, the tax guy was something entirely different. You see, taxes in this day were imposed in a regressive fashion. So the poorest of the people paid the bulk of the taxes in order to fuel the lifestyles of the wealthy, of the top 1% of their elite. And so the poor felt the burden in a very heavy way. Worse than that is that a tax collector, the way it was set up is Rome would come and say to you, hey, listen, uh, for this region of the, of the country that you're collecting taxes in, I need to get this much money. So you need to collect taxes equaling this amount. Oh, and by the way, anything you collect above that amount is yours to keep. You can imagine a system How how Right for corruption, this would be. I got to pay you ten and I can collect twelve, then I get to keep two, which means you can become a wildly wealthy person as a tax collector. Certainly a, a reason why people would want to do this. but the, but remember, Matthew was a Jewish man. That's what we just read. He was a Jewish guy who was collecting taxes from Jewish people, many who would be poor and struggling under the occupation of Rome. They weren't a free people at this time. At at this time in history, Rome was oppressing the Jewish people, which means a Jewish guy was collecting money from Jewish guys to pay for the Roman soldiers who were oppressing them in their own land. So they were considered traitors to their people, despised, hated, So Matthew was most likely very wealthy and also very corrupt which is why they were linked with the sinners with the prostitutes, with the Gentiles. I mean, who else would hang out with them? No wonder they're associated with those groups of people. Their own people would have long rejected them. So that begs the question what would it possess A guy like Matthew to become a tax collector. What would possess him to do this? Why? Why would a person sacrifice their reputation? Why would a person violate their own internal moral code that they had been raised with since childhood? To be despised by most everyone. Why would he do it? And some of you are already, you're like, I know why he would do it. Show me the money. That's why he would do it. And that's true because, of course, he was certainly one of the wealthiest people in his day. Certainly in his region. But that only gets at, at, at the, t- the surface as to why we pursue wealth. Because you've got to stop and ask, what, 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 what about that? Why? Why is it such a powerful motivator? I'd say one of the reasons is because I think he would have seen a path out of poverty, so he took it. Remember, they were an occupied nation. Most of them were living just above their sustenance level. And that means that most everything went to Rome. If you had a way out of that poverty, would you take it? Because I think guys like Matthew would. They don't want that for their family. And if any of you have come from those kinds of a background, if you come from from a background that wasn't super well off, so when I was raised, I, our family we weren't particularly well off, but you know we weren't we weren't like super poor by any stretch of the imagination. And one of the things I remember is uh, my mother. My mother she passed away a long time ago, but one of the things I remember growing up was her closet was filled with shoes. I mean, a shoe addict, as far as I could see, just rows and boxes everywhere you could turn in her closet there were all of these boxes of shoes which I just never understood you could how many shoes could you possibly wear she had to have a pair for every day of the week it's, uh, every day of the year it seemed like just it seemed like so many if you looked at the shoes you would find out that she had two like different pairs of shoes that looked like the same shoe to me You'd be like, aren't these the same shoe? And she'd be like, no, look how this one's different from this one that's here. And look, it has a different... I'm like, they look exactly the same. Or or you would find shoes that were still in the box that had never been worn. Why do you buy shoes if you're not going to wear them? This doesn't make any sense to me. She actually had some shoes that did not match any outfits that she had, that she currently owned, which means she went to the store, she saw shoes that she liked so much and she thought one day I might have an outfit to match those shoes. (laughs) What? And then I come to find out that when she was growing up, her family really was poor. They really did struggle financially for many, many, many years. And so when your shoes wore out back in her day, you didn't get a new pair of shoes. You might get a new pair of shoes when the new school year started. And if your shoe didn't last you till then, you would have to like, like put tape and cardboard and things like that on the bottom of your shoes. So she had like shoe insecurity growing up, which explains what she's doing. She's, she's going out. She's like this to her. Her inadequate shoes growing up was a deep source of embarrassment for her. And she swore she would never do it. She would go into debt to buy shoes because of what, what happened in her childhood. I wonder how many of us are willing to do whatever it takes to avoid financial insecurity. Some of us have been there. We know what it's like. Some of you have experienced it. And you're like, listen, I will never go back there and I will do whatever it takes. Show me the money. And we think that just a little bit more will actually make us happy and secure in life. It could also be that it was just straight up greed, right? It could just simply be that Matthew said, listen, family ties, not as important to me as making money. Reputation, not as important to me as making money. Maybe Matthew just sold his soul for cold, hard cash. I've spoken to enough of you. I know many of you have felt this way. The decisions we've made, and the things we've done, and we've said, oh my goodness, why would I do these things? But the money was good. So we do. Maybe it was security. Some of us work from that basis. We, we're worried, not, we don't want to buy nice things necessarily, but we just need a secure future for ourselves and for our kids. And as long as I can establish that kind of security, then I will be content. You know, maybe that's your experience as well. Maybe you have a family that pressures you to succeed, to make money and to buy the fancy cars and to get the big house in the right neighborhood. And maybe you've got all this pressure from outside saying that's the only way you will really know that you have arrived. And maybe you have. Maybe you've really succeeded. Or maybe you haven't and you're on the other side of this thing. And you're worried about the future. So you, you will beg, borrow, and steal to make sure that you have a solid future, a solid retirement, so your kids can go to the right schools and so that you'll have a legacy financially to leave to your wife and kids. Maybe that's your attitude. Maybe you're a single parent. Maybe you're a single mom and you're saying, listen, it has been so hard to make it. I will do whatever I must. See, there's lots of different reasons and motivations that will drive us to per- the pursuit of money. But I think eventually what we see happening is that Matthew's pursuit of money left him wanting something more. He wanted something more. Something shifted in his heart. And is it that? Have you experienced that? Have you ever experienced it where you've gotten to the place? Maybe you have made it professionally and financially, and you're no longer paycheck to paycheck. You have money to spare. But even in the midst of it, when it seems like now things ought to be right, something is wrong in your soul. Have you experienced that where you're just like, I don't know what's going on. I thought that's all I would have needed. But it isn't. And you look for some sort of life change. But the thing is, life change isn't easy. It needs a powerful catalyst. And, and there are many catalysts that are out there. But religious, a religious, a faith catalyst can so often help. But for whatever reason, this wasn't interesting to Matthew. Some of the other disciples, they followed John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a simple message. He said, listen, God's anointed king is coming. You better be ready for him. Stop sinning. And that was enough for some of our other disciples to begin following John the Baptist. They were his disciples before they were the disciples of Jesus. That message of repentance was, was compelling enough and powerful enough for them. But it didn't seem that way with Matthew. He wasn't a follower of John the Baptist. Because I don't think he was particularly religious. I don't think he was particularly interested in all of the rules and the laws that religion put forward. It just wasn't enough to change his heart. And some of you grew up in a culture similar to this, some sort of turn or burn culture. You grew up in a religious environment that just, they just kept saying, don't do this, and don't do that, and stop doing that, and don't hang out with those kinds of people. And they had a whole long list of the things you weren't able to do and how you needed to live rules and regulations and laws. And that was the whole of your religious experience. And and some of you, you decided to comply with that. And others of you just said, forget it, I'm out. There's nothing compelling in that narrative for me. All about sin and repentance. It's not enough. It seems like that might have been where Matthew was at. So what happened? Matthew, he took a pass on Judaism of his day. And he took a pass on following John the Baptist and the renewal movement that he was trying. But he, but he didn't take a pass on Jesus. Why? And if you read the story, go back in this week and read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. And you're going to see the kinds of things that Matthew saw when he, walked and observed, when he walked with Jesus and he observed his life. You'll start to get a picture as to what was on Matthew's mind When he made his decision. Because he came across a guy. Who was de-emphasizing religion. That's what Jesus was doing. Because it's not about rules and laws. It's about a relationship with our creator. He saw a guy. Where the unclean of society. The leper. And the woman who had the issue with the blood. He saw where the unclean. Were touched by Jesus. And he saw where the outsiders. Like the Roman soldier. A representative of the oppressive nation of Rome came to Jesus and asked for help and Jesus received him and gave him what he wanted. An outsider becoming an insider. He saw the demon possessed people that no one else could help and Jesus showed power over the forces of darkness and I wonder if hope started growing in Matthew's heart. The story right before this one, though, I think might have been most powerful. There was a story of a paralyzed guy, and he clearly needed to be healed by Jesus. And so his friends made it so he could get in front of Jesus. And it was a great story. you got to read it. But it was in that story that before Jesus healed the man, which is, of course, what the man felt like he most needed, he told him, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if this is what transformed Matthew. It's the story right before his Your sins are forgiven. It's not just that he needs a healing of his body. He needs a healing in his soul. And Jesus is promising to give it to him because sinners are welcomed by Jesus. It's Matthew who gives us the genealogies. It's got the four questionable Gentile women in it. It's Matthew who gives us the story of the Magi, the the Gentiles, the foreigners who came and worshipped at the birth of Christ. And this was enough, I think, to make him take a 180-degree turn. Look at verse 9. As Jesus, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. But it's more than that. Luke actually records this same interaction. And Luke paints it in a more aggressive way. He says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, same guy, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him he left everything i think when matthew left everything behind it was as if he recognized that his old sinful ways would no longer define him I think Matthew was looking for something more. He was looking for something more than his greed and more than his insecurity and more than his backsliding and more than his lukewarm devotion to God. I think he was looking for something more and he was finding it in Jesus who loves God. Sinners. You know, the stories of the Gospels, they're told. We have four Gospels, written Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes a story is written in all four of them, and sometimes only three of the writers capture the story, different perspectives. But so there are a few stories that are only captured in one of the Gospels. And I always find those very interesting. Why did he include them and nobody else included them? And in this case, it's only Matthew who gives us two quick little parables found in Matthew 13. It says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls and when he found one of great value he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I think that it is no surprise to us that Matthew, of all people, gives us these monetary metaphors to explain the spiritual transformation that took place in his own life. He was, he was already in the realm of the financial thinking. And he's saying, listen, I am, that's me. I'm the merchant I found. When Jesus told this story, it must have resonated with his soul because he's the one who found the pearl of great price. He was the one who was able to take everything he had before it and leave it aside, offer it all up to Jesus so that he could have the one thing that mattered, the pearl of great price. Because it's easy to give up everything when you are offered something better. And Matthew knew he had found that something better. So much so that he could not help himself. He knew that leaving everything mattered, but it wasn't just for him. He also needed to make certain that his friends knew it. He says it there in verse 10, but Luke again captures it in a more aggressive way. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So now, formerly employed Levi is throwing a great banquet at his house. Why? Is he throwing a party for Jesus? He's throwing his party for his friends, the people that he has come to know and to care about who need Jesus. Because he has found the pearl of great price. He wants to make sure everybody can find the pearl of great price. And he reorders his life. And he reorders his priorities in such a profound way that he gives everybody he knows access to Jesus. In whatever way he can, he makes sure that the sinners can find forgiveness in Christ. Because Matthew was included where he knew he did not belong. And he knew that there were plenty of seats at the table for any of the sinners who wanted to come and find Jesus. Sometimes I wonder about Christians who won't share the story of God's love as seen in the life of Jesus. Why would we do that? Have we found the pearl of great price or not? Why is it that we won't reorder our lives in such a way and our priorities and the use of our resources to help as many people as possible find Christ? I told you that his name means gift of Yahweh and I like to imagine, we're not told this, but I kind of like to imagine that his name of course was Levi and when you read in when you read in Mark and Luke that's what he's called Levi the tax collector. That's who that's who how he would have been known. Levi the tax collector. But Matthew calls himself Matthew. And I like to imagine that it was Jesus who kind of liked to change people's names. I like to think it was Jesus who changed his name as if they were sitting around one day, maybe even at this banquet, and Levi the tax collector, as he was well known and despised, was given a new name. Matthew. Gift of Yahweh. Gift of God. A gift to who? A gift to Jesus? A gift to the world? A gift? Matthew was now not... Levi, the tax collector, he was was a gift from God to the world. That's how Jesus sees him. Stripped of his sin and his greed and his rebellion. He's a gift of God. We need a reality check here because Jesus doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't accept our sin. He doesn't wink at it. We're going to come in a moment to the table of communion That's going to, and that represents for us the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Think about the price that Jesus paid to prove his love for you. He doesn't ignore our sin. He takes it deadly serious and in fact he loves you too much to let you stay in that sin. So repentance and forgiveness will work hand in hand to purify our hearts and purify our actions and that is key. For us to begin our journey toward God. And then we simply have to accept it. We have to be able to say, he did in fact die for my sins. And it doesn't matter where you are at in your life. Maybe you're still in that, I'm going to get it done at all costs kind of a way. Maybe you're feeling like you're kind of a spiritual outsider. Maybe your past is real sketchy. Maybe your present is real sketchy. Will you accept the life transformation that Jesus offers you? He was called a friend of sinners. And that means that he really does love the racist. And he really does love the hater and the gossip and the glutton and the arrogant and the porn addict and the lazy and the man who flies off the handle and the woman who yells at her kids. Jesus really does love the sinner. You know, I got tons of regrets from my past. I got lots of regrets from my present. Jesus tells us we don't have to deny our sin. We don't have to hide our sin. We can actually confess that sin and accept Christ's love. Your family and your friends, they need it. So share the story of Christ's love with them. Reorder your lives. Reorder your priorities. If you have the pearl of great price and let others in on the secret. The hope and the love that Christ has will transform our lives. Let it transform yours. And let it transform the lives of people all around you. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm just asking that you would draw us ever more into the presence and into the experience of your love. Help us to see it, Lord, to experience it more and more. Help us to to dwell in your presence in such a way, Lord, that the experience of your love becomes something that we just know. We we feel it, Lord. We just don't know it in in our minds, but we experience it in our souls. We need it, Lord, because your love for us as broken people is all that our hopes, that our dreams rest upon. We ask, Lord, that you would stir up hearts even now. Make us ever more aware of the importance of sharing your story of love with the world that so desperately needs it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.